1: Uh, podcast. My guests are Brandon K. Fornwalt and Alpin Patel. We're going to be talking about uh, machine learning and healthcare. And, uh, Brandon Fornwalt is an MD, PhD, associate professor and director of the Geisinger Department of Imaging Science and Innovation. And Alpin Patel is a MD, chair of the Geisinger System of Radiology. So the website appears to be uh, geisinger.org. It's G E I S I N G E R.org. So welcome, Brandon, and welcome Alpen. How are you doing? I'm well. We're doing well. Thank you for having us. Yeah. If you guys would just tell us the, what's the premise of the uh, Geisinger work, what's the premise of your work? What are you guys working on?
2: So there are a few things that we, we focus on. One of the biggest things that we, uh, uh, whenever we start a project, we focus on how, the first question we ask is, how, how is this project going to help our patients? So we always have a translation focus. We're not doing research for the sake of doing research, and there's always a room for that. Uh, But our focus is always translation. How can we help patients? Uh, And with that in mind, we have several projects that are going on. And I I can start off with one, and then Brandon can uh, talk about some more. Uh, One of the first projects that we took on was to have uh, look at um, patients who have brain bleeds and see if we can diagnose those. Not, not necessarily diagnose those, but pick those up for the radiologist to read um, early rather than later. So we do a very good job at taking care of our patients who are inpatients as well as who are ED patients, because these are high-acuity, high-priority patients. They're, they're, they're sick patients. But in, a, in an outpatient setting where there is a low clinical acuity, uh, those patients take a little longer to, to take care of but there are always patients hiding in that that have much higher acuity and that they that may be getting in trouble. So how do we find those patients without actually having humans look at it? And that's where we have uh, uh, initial focus on. So we uh, use well, about,
1: well, yeah. Yeah, quick question. Um, if you're looking at the imaging side of it, how would you even know in the first place to do an image? You know, what kind of symptoms would uh, someone present with where you'd say, all right, let's take an image and figure out what's going on?
2: So we, um, um, so that's usually up to the referring doc who actually sees the patient. But once the image is done, so um, in, in case of, uh, I'll give you one example. So we had one patient who was, uh, who came to the doctor and said, it, the daughter said that, you, you know, um, my mom is not behaving normally. So she's uh, she's a little off uh, and uh, a little confused. So um, uh, the physician said that, you know what, she's on a particular type of uh, medications called benzodiazepines. So we're going to take her off, and most of the time that fixes the problem. And um, and most of the time it does fix the problem, but in her case, that wasn't the that wasn't the, the issue. So just to be uh, a good doctor, he ordered a CT scan, although he didn't suspect it. He ordered a CT scan just to be sure that there was nothing else going on. And guess what? This particular person actually had uh, a bleeding in the head that had, we, had, had it not been for the machine, we would not have picked it up at, in an early fashion, and that bleed would have blossomed into something much bigger. So, so yes, it, it's in its current iteration in our program, it's not going to tell people to do the CT scan, but once the CT scan is done, it can be read much faster.
1: Okay, so it's, it's, it, you said that you want to really get people at an earlier stage of problems. Um, so why why is it that, uh, it's at the scan stage, so why is this, is it, how long does it take to read a scan like this, and is that the problem, is the speed, or is it looking at the scan and being able to tell what's it, going on? Like what's Well, the it's of triage
2: is the issue, right? So when you, when you have uh, many patients who have the same, uh, uh, who have same or, or higher acuity, how do you get them all read at the same time?
0: Yes, so the the average read time in an outpatient setting um, for a radiologist to make it a report from a set of images is, it was about 12 hours in our system at that time. And whereas in the inpatient setting or the emergency department, we read those studies in 30 minutes or less. And so, you know, there's a 12-hour delay there. And that's in a system like ours where we have 90 radiologists and 24-hour radiology coverage across all the hospitals that we have. There are lots mm-hmm. of other systems that, that don't have that level of coverage, so their read times are even longer than that. So, so, this, so is what, the, what um, this does, okay. well, so ahead. what
2: this system does is says that okay, a CT's done. The machine looks at it and says, "This is bleeding or not." If it says yes, then we put it at near the top of the list, not deprioritizing others, but at least putting it up at a higher priority than those who don't. So you the machine
1: learning components that does the initial yes, no, and helps in the triage, and then a human being looks deeper? Is that what I'm understanding?
0: Correct, correct, yeah. Yeah. So the machine says yes, no, and if the machine says no, nothing is done. If the machine says yes, and and the scan is on the outpatient list, then it goes up to the high acuity list, and the radiologist usually gets to those in 30 minutes or less, and they don't even know what the machine did. It's just completely running in the background um, so that it's making them more efficient at their jobs, and it's not telling
1: them uh, anything. Okay. That makes sense. So is this system in place yet, or are you still in the works of developing oh, it?
0: Oh, yeah. It's been running since uh, almost uh, two years now, um, and and it's continuously running on all the the the
1: ct scans of the head that are done across our system so how has it helped you know how much has it sped things up and you know what how has it helped you
2: so we we looked at 3 months worth of data on this um uh, and uh, just to see how much it helped the first 3 months we looked at um and uh, it it reduced the turnaround time for our patients by 96% oh wow that means that we That's got we got a red fast 96% faster than we would have otherwise
1: hmm. okay Amazing. Do, can you tell what the uh, accuracy, the false positive or false positive of the false negative of the machine is?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, the overall accuracy we measured with a with what's called an area under the curve where one is perfect and 0.5 is essentially a coin flip. And it was um, operating around 0.85. Um, and, um so, so pretty, pretty good, but not, not perfect, and and that's because you know we have a very diverse, heterogeneous set of clinical data that was clinically acquired, and and um, it's never going to be perfect in that sense. Um, another interesting thing we, we we found was that in the studies that you were you were saying like false positive uh, in the studies that were false positives. Um, where the, the algorithm said, hey, there's a bleed here, but then the radiologist ultimately said there's no bleed. Um, when we re reviewed those images with another blinded neuroradiologist, probably about 10% of those studies had a subtle bleed that may have been overlooked during original interpretation. So,
2: clinically insignificant, um, uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, something that either wasn't put in the report or they didn't see it.
0: So, that's an that's hmm. area of potential improvement in the future where you actually tell physicians, hey, you know, make sure you look for this because the computer thinks there's a high chance that there's something there. But we're not doing
1: that yet. Well, I know it's not the end of the, you know, the computer's only doing the initial screening, so the stakes are not as high. But it's, right, uh, yeah, it sounds like a really good way to do it.
2: So, we're using that as a quality tool currently. Uh, But in the future, one can envision uh, that uh, that can be used as a diagnostic tool as well. But that
1: requires FDA uh, clearance and all that. So it sounds like this system could be rolled out for, um, I mean, many other types of imaging. You know, the initial uh, triage, go-no-go from the machine. Is that your plan or are you just keeping it internal? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, well... Um, To answer your first question, we want to roll it out for other critical findings like pneumothorax or stroke or pulmonary embolism. Some of these, what what we as radiologists call critical findings that need to be reported on in a very quick manner to take care of patients. But then your second question was, are we going to take it external? Um, And we would love to, to start partnering with other places and companies to try to get some of this work out into the world to help patients beyond Geisinger.
1: Okay. That's excellent. Um, So you said there was a number of projects that you're working on. So we talked about this, you know, fantastic results. That's great thinking. Uh, What else are you working on?
0: Yeah, so one of the other areas um, we're focused in is cardiovascular disease. Um, And uh, one of the examples is you take an ultrasound of the heart, um, which is Essentially, uh, you, you know what an ultrasound is. It's like this um, kind of grayscale image of uh, of the way of the way the heart looks as it beats, and um, the same way you do an ultrasound of a baby. Um, and and then the, the idea is, when we look at that ultrasound as humans. What, do we, what kind of information can we extract from that that tells us about clinical events that are going to happen in the future from, in, a, in a patient? And so we're trying to train the machine to essentially identify features in videos of the heart that are predictive of outcomes in the future, such as death, stroke, uh, myocardial infarction or heart attacks,
1: um, things like that. And so
0: Geisinger has a large longitudinal data set that it makes that possible.
1: You know, right now, when you get an ultrasound of the heart, my guess is that they would say, oh, everything looks good, or oh, we have a problem, but they wouldn't try to predict future problems. Exactly. And that's where, um, you know, a lot of the machine learning work
0: has focused on you know, what is the diagnosis today? Um, you've seen the really big papers come out in dermatology. It says, you know, is this melanoma or is this not? In um, the retinal images. Um, and, and what we're trying to do is kind of do it a little differently and say, okay, physicians are pretty good at that. Um, can we use phys- the, the, the machine to look into the future and do things that physicians don't really currently think about or do? And we actually showed in a paper we just put up on archive, we trained a model with over 700,000 videos of the heart to predict death in the future in in patients that get ultrasound of the heart. And we showed that the machine can do it with accuracy that's far superior to what a clinician can do. Um, And we're really excited about that. We're also expanding that into other areas like other signals that are collected in patients like electrocardiograms of the heart and, and then just tabular data that comes out of the electronic health record like laboratory measurements and vital signs
1: and things like that. Um, well, what are, what are some of the conditions that the, the MI or the machine, sorry, the machine learning algorithm is, is seeing by looking at the heart videos? That's a great question. You mean, what is it detecting that relates to uh, the future event
0: of hey, what mortality kind of future
1: events, yeah hey, what kind of future events is it detecting, and how far out in the future
0: yeah, so we're trying to predict in the heart ultrasound study we 're looking at one year mortality, which is a fairly well defined endpoint we 're also looking at um strokes, so is this patient at risk for a stroke in the next one, five, or ten years actually. Um, and then um, we're looking at myocardial infarctions, which is a heart attack. Um, uh, what else? That's, that's kind of the main ones we're going after right now. This, the strokes are, are a, a bit of an interesting one because some of these patients have subtle abnormalities you can actually do something about um, if you detect it on an electrocardiogram that you think they might have a, a, something related to a stroke in the future, you could potentially monitor them and see if they have a rhythm called atrial fibrillation, and and put them on anticoagulation to keep them from having a stroke. And so that's kind of the, I'm I'm, I'm giving you my dream scenario there.
1: All right. No, that's great. Do I mean technicians? Do they do any doctors look ahead to see what uh, problems will happen, or do they just again say looks good, doesn't look good, and that's it?
2: So we currently don't have that capability. Um, to we as physicians don't have the capability to actually do prediction like that and that's where the machines are going to help so we collect a large amount of data in echocardiograms we make uh, uh, you know tens of measurements uh, but when we actually make clinical decisions we may actually l- ingest only a few of those because that's what that's what we can actually look at and and reasonably form a a conclusion with, we're not going to be able to look at all those measurements and do the calculations in our head to actually perform, have a probability. So that's where machines excel, where they can look at all those variables and see uh, and make predictions.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think Rich, like the the data landscape in in healthcare is just getting so complicated now. I mean, we also have this large genomic sequencing project here, where we have one hundred forty thousand patients now through a partnership with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, um, where they have their exomes sequenced, um, and we have that data available, along with all the 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 data in the electronic health record, the vital signs. The laboratory measurements, um, and then all the all the image data, and us as physicians, we 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 have to ingest all that data and make decisions about what to do with patients. And most of what we are doing in our in our everyday lives is 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 in some ways about risk stratification because we're we're trying to say, hey, you know, does this patient have a really high risk of a of a, of a future event, and is there anything I can give them? to change that risk profile so that they have a lower risk of having a heart attack. You know, do they need to lose weight? Do they need to be on an anti-cholesterol medication? Do they need to be on a blood pressure-lowering medication? And so we're just trying to bring machines into the air and computers into the area to help make those predictions in a better way, and a more accurate way, and, and hopefully improve the way we can treat
1: patients and, and, and let them leave, live longer, healthier lives. Yeah, I just wonder if uh, physicians are so busy triaging that there's no time to look any deeper. And I, and
2: I think that's the, that's the point. So we have all this data, and that's, to me, and needs to be converted to knowledge, right? So that means that you take all that data, ingest it, and say, when a patient looks like this from a vital signs perspective, from a lab's perspective, from imaging perspective, this particular treatment works the best. So if a patient fits, fits that profile, uh, then you treat them that way so that their chances of actually being helped are much greater. So that kind of stratification is something that we're working on. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. It's it, Yeah, I mean, I just wonder what the current standard is and the current level is and, you know, how much, uh, how far it has to go. It sounds like it has a very long way to go. Because I know doctors are busy and they just, you know, it seems like yeah, some it, of them barely have time to just treat their patients, period, at best to treat them.
0: One one of the new models of healthcare, Rich, I don't know how uh, um, much you, you pay attention to different models of healthcare, but, you know, most people think of healthcare, they think of the doctor-patient relationship, and the patient seeing that doctor, the doctor orders some tests, um, and then, you know, hopefully things go well, and then the doctor bills the insurance company in a fee-for-service model and says, okay, you know, I did this, this, and this, so, you know, the insurance company pays the physician, and that's, that's how the economics of healthcare work in the fee-for-service model. In the future and and in systems like Geisinger right now, there are, are these large integrated systems and or these capitated payment models where you're paid a certain amount of money to take care of a, of a whole population of patients. And you're then responsible for doing whatever you need to do to keep them healthy. And in that scenario, We've never, like Alpin and I went to medical school, we weren't trained to do that. And so um, we weren't trained to look at an entire population and to say, okay, who do I need to go take care of today? I've got 10,000 patients with heart failure, which ones need me right now and what do they need? That's a very different model and that's where healthcare is going and um, we we need to be ready for that and one of the ways we can be ready for that is developing machine learning models to help us do that in a smart way.
2: And, and uh, take that even a step further, and that's one of the things we're working on, is that uh, if a patient is going to get in trouble, then get them help at home faster because if you can, pre- if you can keep them home and healthy, it, it prevents a costly medical admission, right? Uh, and, and it's safer for them. So uh, hospitals tend to be, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's not um, – Uh, It's not a place where you always want to be unless you're really sick. So if you can keep them from getting that sick and keep them at home in the comforts of their home, that's the ideal scenario.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, I've spoken to, for instance, um, you know, endocrinologists, diabetes doctors, and they'll care for an average of, let's say, 5,000 patients. (laughs) And they told me, you know, most of the patients, they only see them when there's an emergency. Or if they're lucky, they schedule a visit every three or six months, and they see them, and then they address them then. But I don't hear any of them looking at their databases. I don't hear any of them looking at the aggregate of their population and triaging and seeing who needs to be seen. So it's a huge, huge issue.
2: It is. And that's where Geisinger excels, because we have our data assets are, are second to none. So we have two petabytes of imaging data. We, we were custom number three or three, depending on which historian you talk to. Uh, for Epic, so we have approximately 22 years worth Epic data, and on top of that, we have a lot of genomic data. So you can you can see the possibilities are of all the things that we can do to not only predict things, but also uh, uh, also help and help with uh, primary prevention as well as secondary prevention.
1: No, I mean what, what you're saying makes total sense, and you have so you have petabytes of data alone just from the imaging. I guess if you. <laughs> If you wanted to capture what you consider to be all the significant data from the population of patients that you treat alone, that would be, I mean, orders of magnitude more, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I think in the future, well, not, not the future, currently, you know, you're going to see a lot of sensor data coming into the healthcare arena too, where wearables and, you know, and if and I think if Google and Amazon had their way, um, Google would say, um, you know, hey, if you let me use your phone data. Uh, and combine it with your electronic health record data, I'll give you better health advice about what's going on with you. And, you know, Google can already predict, you know, where E. coli outbreaks are happening simply based on Google search histories. And can you imagine the power of combining some of that, for lack of a better term, social network data or, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, with electronic health record data, and, and making even better predictions and recommendations about things that are happening outside of the hospital. Because, you know, like, like you were saying, the the physician sees these patients for 1% or less of their actual lives. And 99% of their lives, they're outside of the hospital. And, um, you know, getting more data from, the, from that arena and combining it with the data in, in, the, in the hospital and the clinics is, is a goldmine for, you know, making us all live healthier lives.
1: Well, what are some of the roadblocks to the data? You know, does HIPAA help, or does it get in the way of data collection and analysis? And what do you see as the big stumbling blocks to implementing this? Uh,
0: You know, HIPAA is really important for patient privacy, but I think that um, we need to find novel ways for patients to be able to combine their data from their phones and these sensors and everything. Into the EHR, and that really it doesn't exist right now. There's no way for a patient to come into Geisinger and say, "Hey, I, I would love for you guys to use my phone's data to help me make better decisions in life." Um, you know, so so yeah, those, those are those are some pretty complicated technological barriers to to get through. How do you how do you bring all that data into one place and make it not only usable and accessible but informative about future events and what, what does it tell us? Cause just having more data is not necessarily going to fix things. You got to have that data and, and be able to interpret what it means.
1: Um, so it's, 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 it's a and tough problem, but I'm pretty excited about it. What's that? <laughs> That's why your model of using AI to flag, you know, triage opportunities or to, you know, make a Pareto of who should be looked at right away makes so much sense because it still leaves the decision in the human's hands, you know, the professional's hands but it saves them a tremendous amount of time and focuses their attention on what's important. Exactly. And, right. and
2: the next step that we're going to do with those kind of projects and those do have been there, that are uh, relatively uh, been working for a while is we're going to be putting in continuous learning in that as well. So it will it'll learn from its mistakes. And that's, uh, that's one of the other projects we're going to be working on pretty soon. So we're going to take that heavily lead project and make it better by teaching it new things, the things that it may have made mistakes on. So
1: We're also we going to be. That two oh, of your, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Rich. Oh, uh, so these are two of the projects you're working on. What's what would you consider as your moonshot? You know, your most ambitious project that you're you really want to work above all else, or have we talked about it already?
0: Um. I would say we, we, the moonshot is um, is finding a way to combine all of those data streams that we did talk about, the genomic data, the image data, the signals data for like the electrocardiogram and then the electronic health record data including notes, the language that, that's written by physicians um, which is where all the symptoms reside and the problem lists and the laboratories that we talked about. How do you take all that data and and put it into one big model to predict future events and interventions and also then display that back to physicians and care teams in a way that makes it usable to them? I mean that's the moonshot right? I mean we have individual projects that are in each of those areas right now um and then we have. Some projects that are using, let's say, two or three of those data streams, but it gets real complicated real fast when you put all of that data into one area and try to use it in a smart way. So, I mean, that's that's the moonshot, I guess. That's my moonshot. So that's a, from a population
2: uh, management perspective. That's a, that's the moonshot. But if you were to just look at daily workflow and daily work perspective, the moonshot would be that how do we help physicians to be better at what they do and more be more efficient? So I'll give you an example. When you um, when you look at the number of physicians we'll need by a year 2025 or year 2030. It's we're going to be short 90,000 to 120,000 physicians short. Second is that if if you have, and this is just one example in neuroradiology, if in a busy neuroradiology practice, uh, a physician can look at about 50 MRIs, assuming that about 425 uh, images per MRI, that's about one image every 1.52 seconds that person will look at. So we're pretty much reaching the limits of human capacity. So combine that with the physician shortage, that tells you that we need help. So that's where the machines are gonna are gonna come in. So My moonshot is figure out a way to help those physicians do their job better, uh, without actually having uh, without having those shortages, so our patients don't suffer. Um, and uh, and part of that is going to be uh, give one other example is that uh, the in the United States is a thirty billion dollar market for image interpretation. That means that if you look at it, cardiology images, radiology images, and every other kind of images, it's about $30 billion market. 10% of those are normal. So if the machine can tell me with 99% accuracy that, that this particular image is normal, then we just saved the healthcare system $3 billion and took that, that, that work that might be easy um, off the off the books for the for the doctors, so they can actually focus on where their expertise matter the most, which are the more complex studies. So that's a long so answer. short this, question, um, but I hope that makes make sense.
1: Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Have you done this with, let's say, your own data to see what it would look and feel like, you know, or with, with uh, you know one or two people you know as a small test?
2: So that's one of the one of the future projects that we we're, we're looking at. Uh, just looking at normals and uh, and see if we can uh, if we can predict it with high accuracy and just take it off the list Or if the doctor's going to look at it they look at it much quicker because uh, uh because there're being a second set of eyes as opposed to first set of eyes quote unquote uh,
0: another thing rich uh, is 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 um training the future physicians and um and workforce to deal with this and be a part of this this data revolution in healthcare i mean um, Albin and I are both engineers and so we nerd out over this stuff and we love it um, but there we got to change the way we, we we train medical students to be ready for this and medical students residents and fellows um, because they got to be part of this they got to understand and live in the data world and um, it, it's going to be a really exciting time to, to kind of revolutionize that yeah, no, so
2: definitely. AI, AI is here it is, going to, it is going to change what we do, there is no doubt. How will it will change, how fast it will change, that remains to be seen. Uh, but my concern is that uh, we don't have enough physicians engaged in AI to guide its evolution, and one may say even revolution, right? So I think that's the, that's the key part, that, um, that we need physician engagement in this. Number one, educating the physicians, uh, or, or the new doctors that are coming online. And number two is use their creative thoughts to see how we can help patients.
1: Are you getting resistance when you speak to other doctors, or are they all for it, or what's what's the climate look like?
0: I mean, I think there's, um, when you find the physician engineers, that, and, and, and radiology tends to attract more of those, they love to, like, nerd out over it and be like, oh, wow, this is great stuff, you know, really cool. And then there's the other side of it is, the, the complete other side of it is, you know, I, I don't need anybody to help me do my job. I need less computers and and more time with my patients. And 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 in some ways, you know, we're trying to make it that way, right? Like give the doctors time with the critical patients that they need to be with. I, I think most people are kind of in the middle right now. They're they're sort of, you know, trying to figure out uh, medicine's already really challenging and complicated. And and there's a lot of physician burnout and clinician burnout and um so uh, hopefully people are looking at this as a as a as a way to improve that and improve the way we we treat patients but that was kind of a vague answer
1: to your question sorry <laughs>
2: so let me let me no, all no, give
1: it, it gives me an yeah. idea of why there would be resistance from doctors and what their you know sure. the sure. reasons are right. so i i could see you saying well i know you want more time with the patients so i know you want this and that but it just doesn't look like that's ever going to happen. So we have to do this to make the time with the patients a heck of a lot more useful and efficient.
2: Sure. absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think some of, the, some of the reaction early on was due to some people getting on a national stage saying that, uh, and this was about three and a half years ago, saying that in five years, all the radiologists are going to be replaced by machines. <laughs> It didn't happen. Oh, okay. because that, was, medicine that would
1: make me dig my heels in, too. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> it,
2: so it, it, it didn't happen because, you know, medicine's a little more complicated uh, to, to do that with. Eventually, uh, you know, a few decades down the road, uh, we may go down that road. But right now, we've got to take the first steps, right, before we can run. So I think that's the, uh, uh, that's the part that sort of uh, made the physician less engaged, but I think they, they're beginning to realize that machines are, uh, are going to be helpful as opposed to hurt. And I think that's the part that they're, they're beginning to engage again, that it's not going to take your job. What it is going to do is, is make you better, take care of patients better, make you even safer in some cases.
0: Yeah. And one other thing I think to add on to that um, is that um, physicians are scarred by the whole promise of the electronic health record. Um, you know, this this digital rev, revolution in medicine, uh, I guess, started when the big EHR companies came around and started saying, oh, medicine is going to be so much better when it's digitized. And, you know, I think Atul Gawande just wrote a, a really big article about this, and I think it was in the New Yorker or, or somewhere, but essentially saying that, you know, actually, we spend way more time in front of computers now. Um, and it's, it's, if anything, made our lives more complicated. It's easier to do the stuff on top of the large populations now because we collect so much data, but we got to find a way to swing that pendulum back the other way to actually make these electronic health record systems or data systems far more usable to the physicians and make them more like our cell phones, like that help us in our everyday lives instead of, you know, frustrate us and take more time away from from us and our patients, so. I think that, and I
2: absolutely agree with you, Brandon, and the promise of uh, Electronic Medical health record was that it's um, it's going to make things better for you. It's going to be there to serve you. Uh, now, I think what has really happened is that the humans are serving it, than it's serving the humans.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. Well, very good. So, what's the best way? What are some resources, resources for listeners, you know, if they want to reach out for potential collaboration or questions? You know, where can we point them to go? We have a,
0: a website. Um, uh, if you search for Geisinger Radiology or Geisinger Imaging Science, we should be one of the top hits up there. Um, and you can contact both Alpen and I are on that website. Um, you know, and then. There's lots of really good review articles about this uh, this topic. You know, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, has released a couple of nice ones recently talking about the future of artificial intelligence and machine learning in healthcare. Um, and then, of course, the papers that we publish are also listed up on our website um, and, and available
1: online. Well, very good. All right. And then you can go also go to uh, Geisinger.org. Yes, indeed. Um, um, and if you, if I
2: can I can uh, give you my email address if somebody wants to uh, wants to contact as well. So, it's A. A. Patel, P. A. T. E. L at geisinger.edu.
0: Yep. And similarly, I'm B. K. fornwalt F. O. R. N. W. A. L. T at geisinger.edu. And
1: and both of those are up on the website too. So. Well, very good. Well, Brandon and Alpen, I appreciate you coming and. I'm glad someone's thinking of these things and it's, it's super important. So I really hope that your work uh, gets out there and, and gets, becomes the standard of care, I guess, as they call it.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor to speak to you.
1: Yeah, thank you for everything you're
0: doing to, to help with that, uh, with that promise. So we appreciate it.
1: You have been listening to Almost Here, around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast Post to review